Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. I have a really, really great pleasure uh, from a guy who I met many years ago, again, back at Vertigo. We're going to talk for a few minutes today again about Vertigo. And it just seems like I've met so many people then. It was just the beginning of so many things, like a connection or a, a kind of promotion or a push towards paragliding at that time. I don't know. Raul Geiger, who is my very, very honored guest here today, to Switzerland and chat to him in the Piersch Valley. He is a family man. He has a 14 and an 18 year old daughter and his wonderful wife who we met uh, when he was 19 years old. He wasn't sure if he had two wives or two daughters a minute ago, but he's just remembered he's got two daughters and only one wife. <laughs> Hi, Raul. Hi, Steph. We were talking a minute ago about how lockdown is starting to get long and irritating and you've given me news on the 11th of May something happens in Switzerland. Uh, exactly. Yesterday, uh, Swiss government decided that from the 11th May on, there will be a slow opening again. So I hope we can uh, do some teaching, certainly with uh, some distance and not too many students. And, uh, and then let's see what the tandem season brings this year. But for sure, there will be a weak season and uh, we don't know what to expect exactly. So it's still kind of like you don't really know what's happening. But for sure, there is a small opening now, which makes me feeling better. Well, we were just discussing this morning uh, Sweden that has absolutely no, no lockdown and hasn't had one and, and South Africa and the differences. And we are sitting in a situation, a very difficult situation in South Africa with people needing to work hand to mouth, work every day, basically. And then they've been for five weeks lockdown and no work and a lot of people getting very, very desperate. And then, of course, uh, our government is not always very clear. So they, for example, have said, OK, people can do exercise. And then from tomorrow, there's a five stage lockdown process. You know, so now we're going to stage four. We were in stage five and stage four means that we can um, now go jogging or walking or cycling between six in the morning and nine. And that's it. And everybody will obviously be out because it's only getting light at 7.30 in the morning. Between 8 and 9 o'clock, we'll have a lot of people out at the same time. And that's the wrong idea, you know. So we have a lot of challenges. <laughs> same, same here. It's hard to understand, you know. Since uh, Monday, hairdressers opened their shops. I mean, they're getting pretty close. And um, I don't know what uh, why hairdressing is so important, but um, it seems to be a very, very important thing. I underestimate it, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, you and I, we, don't, we let a bush grow above our heads. Uh, it doesn't matter, we become cavemen. But uh, for other people, the hairdresser, it's priority number one that it's open. That is kind of really funny. Huh? And for me, I question at a hairdresser, there's lots of social, there's lots of people coming in and out, there's lots of people touching each other. How do you cut someone's hair without touching them? Huh? And then what, you're going to do it with rubber gloves and both of you have a mask on? And yeah, it's all very strange. Why can't we then tandem fly with a mask on and then, you know, <laughs> rubber gloves and have no contact? That's weird. You own Evolution. You own a wonderful school in Reed Brig. Uh, that's, as I said, in the Fierce Valley, very famous for big competitions, for big flying up and down. I'd never flown there until I visited you last August, September. I also noticed that in your school, you have a team of very close pilots. Now, you guys 
not only pilots and instructors, but you also hang glide and you paraglide, you do tandems and you do instruction, and that's great. But I notice your students are really of a very, very different kind of attitude to others. Do you want to comment on that? It's hard to um, to explain what happens, but I think it's the fact that I start in autumn with a group. I take uh, minimum five, maximum eight students, and uh, I don't want to have more because uh, in this size of a group, you get this, this mentality of helping each other, you know, being a team. They start all at the same time, do their test at the same time. So this seven, eight months, we work together, we're kind of like a family. All the students which leave my school, they're kind of like friends in the end, you know, it's not a kind of like a customer or a client, it's a friend. And also in this group, you get to know each other, you spend a lot of time. I also encourage them to help each other to fold their wings and we go up again. And it's lots of motivation. It's like the same way I experienced flying in the beginning. I started with two good friends. The way you progress is way faster and better when you do something together with someone else. And you can also measure a bit and see at which level is he, what is he doing? I want to know that as well. Or, you know, you get a little jealous, but that forces you to do um, some efforts. And um, yeah, I think that's the size of the group. We, we travel together, we fly together, and that's a good ambience, yeah. I think it's a very refreshing attitude. A lot of schools, of course, it's not their business model. I don't want to compare the one and the other, but uh, I've worked many years at Blue Sky paragliding in, uh, in Osti Hall in Austria. And Blue Sky have new students that come every single week, and you can arrive on a Monday morning and show up. And I did definitely notice that the kind of camaraderie or helping one another is definitely not present in their setup. It's nothing against their setup. It's obviously they've got an advantage that people can come and go one week at a time. So they're one week modules. You can stay for the whole three weeks and learn to paraglide in three weeks. Or, of course, you have a whole different thing. And I would call yours more a, a basic training than actually a mentorship program where actually you're teaching people the deep meaning of paragliding. Now, you started paragliding long ago. You said 1969, but then you were thinking German and actually. <laughs> I mean, 69 was, was a nice year, I reckon. <laughs> I didn't know. Yeah, yes, uh, 69, uh, so many advances. People who remember 1969 in the USA, they weren't really there, I think. They were missing something. 1996, you started, and you started on exactly the same day to who we've agreed we dedicate this podcast to. And that is a fantastic, fantastic guy called Matthias Rotten. And uh, tell us about that. Eh? Tell us about your starting. Um, actually, I was in, in the same school with Matthias, and um, we knew each a little bit. He was a crazy guy, and I tried to be a crazy guy as well. One day, we met Dominic Steffen. He learned flying in Zermatt. He was for uh, several years a test pilot of Paratech, Swiss uh, brand, which doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. Dominic was kind of like uh, showing us his, we had a, a, just one course that didn't, didn't happen. So we had a one hour off. So we went in a bar to have a drink together and Dominic opened his flight book and said, hey guys, I, I do some paragliding. What about you? And me and Matthias, we, we had wide open eyes and going like, wow you are a pilot? And he said, yes, uh, I fly. And said, what about us? Can we fly as well? He said, for sure. And when you're 16 years old, uh, you can start. And me and Matthias, right at that time, we were 16. 
So uh, Dominic said, okay, I'll bring my glider down next week from Sermat to Brieg, where we were in school all together. And uh, he just made us fly, you know, three seconds on a training hill, you know, just two meters above ground. And for me, Matthias, it was that feeling we were kind of like looking for, you know, it's kind of like you, you wait for something to happen in your life. And these three seconds, I never forget them. That was kind of like the point where you go home, you need to talk to your father, you can't sleep anymore, you're in bed, um, staring at the walls with wide open eyes, and you just want to go back to that point where you take off. So um, that's how it started. And we went to Sermat, and there was no doubt. I mean, it was just this... The good thing was that I asked Matthias, hey, do you do it? And he said hey, for sure I will do it. And I said, okay, if you do it, I do it as well. So he was always a bit more convinced, you know, he was straightforward. And for me, it was kind of like, okay, if this guy is doing it, I want to do it as well, because that feeling, it needs to happen again and again. Ah, bloody beautiful. It's really like listening to poetry, uh, Raul. I remember you, uh, when I met you, when we really got to know each other uh, last year, uh, just back to what you were saying about your students. You had a group of people around. They were not students. They were friends. They were definitely friends. You were making a uh, raclette, uh, this beautiful melted cheese for those that don't know. And there was potatoes. And the evening got really out of hand, like often by me. And it was fantastic. It wasn't just students. They, although they were agreeing at the beginning of the season to uh, sign up with you, there was much, much thicker feeling than that. Uh, going to you and Matthias, four years later, uh, you told me a few minutes ago, Matthias said, we go to Vertigo. That's the first Acro World Championships officially in 2000. You said, nah, I don't do that. And he said, we do that. And how did that turn out then? Um, I remember it was in, uh, in tune where he lives and we were walking up a hill in the evening. Uh, the sun, yeah, it was sunset and he was talking about this vision and he had, uh, I remember he had uh, a one written on his hand. I said, hey, what does this one mean? And he said, dude, that's because um, I'll go to Vertigo and I will win. I'll be number one. Not very sure if that was the first time or the second time, but he was always so convinced and he was so straightforward and said, hey, I want to go there and I want to win this competition, if not this year, then next year. But the vision was always number one. As Dominic Stefan came as well, that was kind of like the first time you really get in touch with people which do aerobatics because Dominic, Matthias and me, we did, but we did in our own small world in Sermat, you know, doing spiral dives every flight, full stalls and, uh, and spins, you know, and wing overs. That was kind of like this basic uh, um, aerobatic maneuvers which existed at that time. Going to Vertigo was kind of like, okay, we're going to meet uh, the Rodriguez brothers, we're going to meet uh, Andy Hedegaard, we're going to meet, uh, you know, whoever is in this scene, you know, so the names you knew a little bit from, from the scene, you know. And um, yeah, we went there. Matthias and me, we both have a big Rasta head, you know, and uh, yeah, smoking joints with the Rodriguez brothers and stuff like that, you know, <laughs> that's how it started. <laughs> And then, yeah, we did over maneuvers and imagine at that time, it's not like today where they where you do infinite tumblings and everything is connected from one maneuver to the other. It was more kind of like, okay, you flew out, you did a full stall, then you did a spin, 
Then you did a spiral dive or a synchro spiral. You did the roll reversal. And that was it at that time. And we did all this with um, P7, you know, from Paratech, uh, yeah, competition glider. And I flew last year, I took the P7 out from, from the Keller to make a flight with it. And I would say that's it's unbelievable. It's I shit my pants just doing wing overs with that wing knob, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, was that the worst glider you ever owned? Because that's some of the questions that I ask pilots. Uh, is that the one you'd most like to forget? You took it out of the cellar to try it to fly once. And do you looking back thinking, or oh, was there a worse glider than that in your history? Yeah, the worst. It's uh, it's both. It's hate and love because um, it was the most beautiful glider at that time. It uh, was a very nice wing, but I... I did three times, uh, I came down with a parachute, you know, because this glider, you know, in strong wind, fully accelerated, if you get a collapse, I mean, it was just done. You, there was no no exit of that. And um, so it, it's kind of like you love it, but uh, sometimes the glider tries to kill you. I mean, yeah, mainly I, <laughs> I tried to kill myself, you know, because you were just too young, too crazy and bulletproof, not realizing what you're doing. So... Yeah, it's one I, it's a glider I love and I hate, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe it's like one of those psycho bitches that lives at home, but you really, really love her because she gives the best sex ever. But uh, on the other <laughs> hand, she, I, she can tear you out in the middle of the night. Or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the day comes, you're too old for the psycho bitches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As we grow old, uh, we start to realize that we want to stay bold and stay flying. <laughs> <laughs> you sell uh, Soup Air, BGD and Skywalk products in your school. All three makes uh, smaller companies, uh, um, kind of uh, producing fresh and different. And you have a kind of uh, different feeling about each of them. Uh, you, you obviously sell them because you want to, because you like them, not because you get a cheap price. That's not your... Uh, ethos and your feeling in your life. Uh, is there any comment you want to make? Uh, you don't have to go into specifics about any brand, but it's just good to have um, not too many brands. That's one thing. I don't want to sell everything, and um, so I try to keep it on two brands. Now it's three, but it's kind of like one brand has something, the other one doesn't, and that's mainly what I look for. So you got this BGD colorful. Uh, nice rolling uh, wings you know compared to the skywalk which is a german brand you know like when you drive a bw or an audi you know it's it's a german quality and super which is kind of like a, for me a little bit a newcomer and uh, i mean they produce wings in several years but they're not that well known yet in our region let's say and I just love to give these brands a chance to to get big, you know. Otherwise, it's just make the bigger, bigger, you know, or the biggest bigger. And that's on one hand not my attitude. On the other hand, it's uh, there's so many other brands they know how to produce nice wings, and that's uh, why I'm curious. I want to see other wings in the sky and uh, trying other stuff instead of swimming in the mainstream. Yeah, oh, good for you. Uh, that's really, really nice. Uh, I think that's fantastic. Now, let's uh, just wrap up one more time in memory, in, in memory of our friend uh, Matthias Rotten. 
Matthias, if you would like to check out, uh, was uh, helping Jin to design something called the Jin Gangster. And they even made a whole film about it because the Jin Gangster was uh, arguably one of the first acro gliders that kind of made a name for itself. I know Major Tom, he was uh, definitely sworn on that. So he was one of your acro competitors. Matthias, although, and you've told me a lot of insight here, Raul, about Matthias, because I didn't realize he was so fixed on being a number one, that he had the number one written on his hand. It maybe gives a little bit of insight into why he got so good. Now, anybody who knew Matthias Rotten, who has ever have a, had a look into uh, him, this guy, uh, who unfortunately passed away in 2008 in a speed riding accident, no one quite knows what happened, but uh, they did find his body uh, some, some time after he died, and it was really a pity because he was so good. He was the only guy I knew who could clip in backwards and perform a full acro maneuver. So you will Google his name if you're interested. Uh, if you're a young crack up and coming in the paragliding world and you want to think, oh, I'm really good. Just have a look at what Matthias Rotten was doing, clipping in backwards in a full acro program. Um, so you're looking the thing completely the wrong way around. And um, he did that in 2006. I just Googled a little bit him. And he did some other fantastic things. Do you want to say something about your friend that you knew much, much better than me? Um, and there's one thing I want to mention is in, in this film, um, Play Gravity 1, where it was all about him, I think there's a moment somewhere where he is, um, <coughs> he's uh, sitting there in his hammock and people, uh, the, yeah, the reporter asks, yeah, why do you do this or uh, what's the intention and so, and he says, look, it's funny, when I'm here on this globe, I don't really know what to do, I don't know what, what life is for. So he had never the intention to uh, to learn being a mechanic and then doing his job. He said, when I'm in the air, I don't ask myself this question. So that's why he wants to be in the air. And that's pretty much what he is. When he was in the air, he was himself. He didn't think. He was just in his element, uh, in motion, in this feeling he loves so much. And um, he put all his energy into that. And maybe, let's say, the, the surrounding which it expects from a young man being um, somewhere in a job, earning a lot of money, um, you know, at one, some stage you have a wife and kids in the house, and blah, blah, blah. So that's what Swiss um, people want from you, you know, that, that's what you do. And Matthias, he questioned that a lot and was just kind of like, I'm here to fly. That's it. Raul, we are all, uh, well, I say we are all. We've got family men like uh, we know uh, Andre Renz for Delbitz and uh, Russell um, Achterberg, South African champions who are, who are uh, very much the family man and, and more like that. But we are not all cut of the same cloth. So we are all coming somewhere differently. Maybe Matthias was a complete extreme, that he really wanted to break that mold of this Swiss thinking, as you call it, you know, which is... Uh, a quite a fair stereotype how the Swiss are thinking and that they're planning for their financial future. Matthias didn't give a rat's ass. Uh, he, he wanted to live his life and he wanted to. And you and I, I mean, we both knew him quite well. You knew him very well. But uh, Matthias was always pushing, always pushing. And I don't mean pushing the risk factor, but he was always pushing to further himself learning in paragliding. But do you comment on that? 
Um, yeah, as you say, Steph, it's his attitude. He was always um, looking to have fun, to do something, um, yeah, something which is gives him a good energy, good vibes, and he was always uh, ready to share it with good friends. But uh, I asked him once, said, well, why, why do you always choose me? Why do you come to me and say, hey, Raul, come on, let's do this? And he said, yeah, because uh, it's so easy to influence you. It's so easy <laughs> to, to, to bring you in the boat, you know, because he, I was kind of like open for new ideas and, and his ideas especially because he always had these crazy ideas. And as you say, he pushed it all the, always, you know. He was so passionate about music, flying, movement, you know, and all the energy. He read a lot of books and um, also this number one thing, you know, is just kind of like a, a positive mindset, you know. Why do you go to a comp and think like, yeah, okay, maybe we'll make it to the fifth place. Matthias was kind of like, no, he didn't think about the fifth place. He said, it's possible to, to be a number one, you know. It, at least it's possible, you know. So that was his way of thinking, his way of living. It was always living in the moment and, um, yeah, going to the end, you know, definitely. Full gas all the time. Full gas. Well, rest in peace, Matthias, uh, 28 years old. He lost his life doing what he was doing. And like every one of us, and I don't want to speak for Matthias because I'm not Matthias, but if I had to fly into a cliff tomorrow, I would die doing what I really, really love doing. And I would have absolutely no regrets about that. The real story you want to tell us is why I called you for this podcast. And you have a very, very special connection to a piece of ground which is next to you, which you also later, after having rubbed all your pennies together and bought your actual house, you managed to buy a very special piece of land with some historical meaning next to it. And that piece of uh, land, um, you showed me two books Two books have been written on this very subject about a man called Chavez who did the very, very first crossing of the Alps in an aeroplane. Please tell us that story in full. Um, hard to start. Uh, the full story. Uh, let's make a short overview first. I mean, um, in the beginning of the 19th century, uh, flying started. I mean, in 19... Three, the brother Wright in the States uh, did the first flight in an airplane, just a few meters off, few meters off the ground and uh, just a couple of meters um, far. But that was the, the first flight, they say. Uh, I mean, for sure, there are other people saying, okay, no, it was me. But uh, yeah, it was the brother Wrights. And seven years later, um, seven years of uh, making these airplanes better, Gio Chavez, he was uh, original from Peru, but his father was a rich banker living in Paris. He was the first man flying over the Alps. And um, how did he came to that point? So Gio Chavez was living in Paris, and one day he observed the airplanes in the sky. And that was kind of like, whoa, what the hell is that? So he was kind of like running after these planes to see uh, what it is, where they go, where they land. And as you seen that, for him, it was clear, okay, that's what I want to do. And there is already one of his famous um, sentences he said is, J'en ai marre de la vie des snobs à Paris, il faut que je fasse quelque chose. So he said, um, I'm fed up with the, 
stupid life of the snobs in Paris. I want to do something. And with this something, uh, it was clear he wants to fly an airplane. He wants to be uh, a pilot. Um, he was uh, very quick in doing that. He went to the to this airfield. Uh, he got money from his father. He was a rich man and did his license. Before even it came to this Alps crossing, he crashed twice, but he um, survived, you know, young man, 20 years old, 23 years old. And shortly before, in February, he made the record of altitude. It was 2,500 meters above sea level. And at that moment, it was clear for him, okay, the Alps crossing, that could be possible. Imagine at that time, it was uh, records were kind of done every week, you know, from the, the Blériot, that was the, the plane he flew. Blériot was a man, that was the name of a man who invented this airplane with 50 horsepower only. And he flew over the channel, the English channel, from uh, France to England. And this crossing was such a big moment in the history of aviation that hundred that the next day he got hundred orders to build a Blériot, you know, for, for private pilots. And at that time it was kind of like, oh, I need to build hundred airplanes all of a sudden. And Geo Chavez, he had one of those Blériot airplanes with 50 horsepower. It was a weak machine, you know, with, with this 50 horsepower, but compared to the other airplanes at that time, it only had one, one wing or one surface instead of a double-decker, how do you say, you know, with, with two wings, or, or even three or four, you know, it all existed at that time. And uh, But he was uh, a little lighter than the others and had the better maneuverability. And um, that was the right plane he bought to do this Alps crossing. So what happened? It was uh, the time when flying was... Um, it was dangerous and <laughs> only for, for rich people somehow. They made all kind of um, events, you know. They needed to be the pilots here and there, made events and big spectacular things, you know, to get the crowd there and, and make this um, airplane flying popular. And uh, Milan at that time said, okay, guys, we pay 70,000 Swiss francs. At that time, 70,000 francs for that guy who flies the first over the Alps and is landing in Milan. And they had one week time. They had nine pilots which wanted to show up. In the end, they, ex uh, they accepted five to come. There, were fr uh, there was a French pilot, English pilot, German, American pilot. So five pilots came in the end. And um, that started in 1910. It was September 1910. The pilots came with their planes, uh, which they brought with the with the train, you know. They assembled them on this place in Rietbrig, where I am living now. Why this place? Um, Rietbrig uh, is in the valley. And to cross the Alps, there was the Simplon Pass, which is only 2,000 meters high. So it was a nice kind of like a gap, you know, a pass where you can fly over to get to Italy, exactly uh, to Domodossola. And from, from the Modosta, it's kind of like a straight line, flat down to Milan. So uh, the flight from the Modosta to Milan was not the problem. The thing was, how do you cross the Alps and fly over 2,000 meters? But as Geo Schabe himself showed a couple of months before that flying at that altitude is possible, 
Um, he was pretty convinced it works, but it's the Alps, it's wind, and it's turbulence. And that was the bigger problem, let's say. And the, a nice thing I want to mention about this story is um, that these pilots arrived, and for this uh, small, small village, you know, where everyone was a farmer and had a few cows and chicken and sheep in his uh, shed, you know, and people were living a simple life, all of a sudden, lots of people came with um, cars, you know, um, they drove up and down the pass to check out the wind and, and the area. And all of a sudden, these airplanes appeared in the sky. So I'm just actually right now I'm reading a book about uh, it's brand new. Um, a woman from this region uh, wrote uh, in the view from a, a boy who is just a poor boy in this region. And then from this perspective, how he was looking at all these uh, things happening in 1910, you know. So he's kind of like milking his cow, and all of a sudden he, he sees an airplane in the sky, and he's going like, what the hell is that? But anyway, these pilots, they came. Five pilots here on place. They build up um, tents to put the, the airplanes in. And already the first week, and it was a seven-week uh, window they had to fly. And the first weekend, the Sunday, the weather looked good. So the pilots just arrived. They made their first flights on Saturday to check out the, the takeoff field, uh, going a little bit closer to the, to the pass and so on. And Sunday was perfect weather. And these guys they were super keen to say, okay, tomorrow we're going to do it, you know, already the second day. It was perfect weather. They announced uh, not much wind as far, you know, how they were able to um, judge the weather at that time. But then there was one thing. There was, the, there was um, how do you say, it was a um, Catholic um, uh, day, you know, where everyone had to go to church. Sorry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was mess. 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 They, they need, yeah, it's a mess. It's a mess. <laughs> yeah, the, it, it was Sometimes a mess. It's a mess. <laughs> Sometimes it's a mess, but it spells M A S. It ended up in a mess for sure. <laughs> so, what happened? Um, the people from Switzerland, from Breek, from Viet Breek, from this specific place, they said, okay, guys, tomorrow you cannot fly because we go to church. And the people from Milan said, hey, boys, don't fuck it up, okay? Let the pilots fly. If you don't let them fly, we, we cancel the whole thing, or at least they cannot fly on Monday, you know? So the people from Brig said, no, 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 uh, we need to go to church tomorrow. They cannot fly. And in the end, at three in the morning, they agreed, okay, let's go to church in the morning and let the pilots fly in the afternoon. So what happened? People went to church in the morning. They had two thousand. In the end, it was three to four thousand people in the afternoon. You know, after church, it was a good moment to go come to this big field, see what the pilots are doing, what is an airplane, you know, and then being uh, there when the when the moment comes that the first pilot crosses the Alps with an airplane. Um, so the people came. There were heaps of people. They paid at that time, I think, one franc or two francs for entrance. To get to this field and see the, the airplanes and the pilots taken off. But the pilots, they refused. They said, hey guys, 
we do not fly when you tell us, we fly when we want to fly. So in the end, Gershans were there, arms crossed and said, no, I don't fly. There were even people paying them money, said, we give you 1,000 francs, your cat in your hand, that at least take off, fly a little bit and land. And his answer was, guys, I'm not in, we are not in a circus where you tell the horse to, to dance. I'm not a horse in a circus. I'm a pilot and I want to fly when I want to fly. So in the end, they refused. And that Sunday, imagine 3,000 people came. They paid all two bucks. So they had somewhere uh, a box with 6,000 bucks. And before the people, yeah, the people started realizing, okay, nothing will happen here. And they wanted to go back to the entrance to get the money back. There was a small, uh, a small boy, a young boy, who realized quickly that uh, yeah, it's going to a bad end. So he ran down, grabbed this box with the money, and brought it down to the to the bank to to save it. You know, but that's also kind of like a funny moment in that history. In the end, to make it a little bit shorter. Um, it was bad weather during the whole week. No one could fly though. They did a few flights here and there, trying to get a little bit higher up. Chavez even made it over the pass for a little moment when he got into some heavy winds and turbulence and needed to come back and land here again. So it came to the point where the other three pilots said, okay, that's not possible with these Alps, with that altitude, with that wind, with that weather, the Alps crossing is not possible. So they left, and then the Friday came, kind of like uh, almost the last day of this window they had. And Chavez, 23 years old, waiting too long, being keen, like like Matthias would have been keen, you know. He stepped in his airplane and said, I need to do it. And I do it now. No matter what, I will do it. Where three days before, when he took off and came back from all the turbulence, he said, um, my life is worth more than 70,000 bucks. That's what he said when he came back from that flight. But that morning, two days later, he said, I need to do it. I will go and I will make it happen. And that's what he did. He took off. He flew over the pass. And then there was a, a hard decision because they kind of like had a very strict plan where they fly through. So he needed to go to over a second pass, the Mungera Pass which is also a little higher than 2,000 meters. But before he came to that pass and would have easily glided down to the landing field, he got strong winds, you know, from, from the right side, from the west. There's a, a almost 4,000 meter peak with a huge glacier. And I think all this cold air, which is constantly blowing down, just made him blowing down into a gorge the Gondo Gorge, you know, which is kind of like Mordor, let's say, you know, it's definitely, it's a thing like this, you know, with steep walls, 1,000 meters high on the left and the right. So he needed to fly through this gorge to get to the Modossola. And um, yeah, there was heaps of turbulence, for sure, it was freaking cold as well. And the flight uh, lasted about what, half an hour, 30 minutes. And uh, he made it to the Modossola, definitely. And 10 meters over the ground, whatever he did, you know, but for sure he came down with some speed, you know, to fly over the crowd, which was there, and he made the impossible happen. I would say when you're 23 years old and you're the man at that moment, you want to show the people a little bit, you know, how fast yeah. you can fly. So what happened in the end, they said, okay, that the plane kind of like 
came down with lots of speed, and when he flattened out his curve, the, the wings broke together, and from 10, 15 meters, he crashed into the ground. He was still alive. Uh, he had um, broken legs, you know, several times broken, and uh, yeah, whatever, you know, was bleeding everywhere a bit. But it was nothing uh, radical, and people at that time said, ah, he will survive, you know, he just got his broken legs. But in the end, he he got fever, you know, he was uh, in bed for three days, he was unconscious, uh, more or less all the time, you know. And when he woke up, he was always talking about the turbulence and these heavy moments up there at 2000 meters, fighting with the winds, fighting with the temperature, fighting with the airplane, you know, which was almost unmaneuverable in these heavy winds and turbulence. And then he died. But he died as a hero and he, he knew that he made it happen. And I hope that on some part he died, you know, satisfied and happily. A little bit, at least. Yeah, that's the story of Geo Chavez, Jorge Chavez, who was the first man ever who flew over the Alps. Yeah, and he took off at your little famous place right next to your house there, which is uh, fortunately and a great pride for you to own such a little piece of land that's just an arbitrary piece of Swiss field, but it's a, a piece of ground with some historical value. Yeah, I was um, asking you for this podcast because, of course, you told the story to me very passionately. You didn't tell it in such depth when we met, but you showed me the two books. And if I remember correctly, it was some family relation of yours with, I think it's your grandfather who wrote one of the two books, something like that. No, that's another story. Um, there is no, uh, they're not relatives at all with Pio Chavez, but my grandfather was uh, Hermann Geiger, which is a... Uh, maybe even um, even more well-known pilot in, in the world of aviation. So Hermann Geiger, he was a, a pioneer of um, rescue flying in the Swiss Alps. So my grandfather was, lots of people think he was the first guy who landed with an airplane on a glacier, which is not the case, but he was the guy who had a special technique to land on steep glaciers. And he was definitely the first man who started um, saving people which were in danger, danger in the Alps, you know, for, they had accidents and he was able to rescue them with his technique of flying and landing airplanes in deep snow on glaciers and uh, high, high altitude. Yeah, so that was my, my grandfather. He died when he was 52 with a bad accident, you know, with the airplane, kind of like something really simple and stupid. But he was the pioneer of Swiss rescue flying. Yeah, never told you all the stories mm, about that. You're a little bit surprised now, but there are more books and films about him than, uh, yeah, than Guillaume Chavez, in fact, yeah. I mean, one leads to another and one becomes an inspiration for another. Just listening to your story, you're telling me about the Wright brothers. And it's no surprise to me that three or 4,000 people would have shown up with a, a massive area. Wow, that's one of those flying things. I mean, imagine we saw something we've never seen before, like never, but we've heard about it and we've seen all we've seen because there was no TV or film back then. We've only seen black and white pictures in the newspaper of this thing called an airplane. And we really want to see that thing flying. So yeah, it must have been at that time. Uh, yeah, like a UFO today, you know, nowadays you, it must be uh, it must have been uh, an event of size and um, meaning, 
which was uh, people even didn't realize at that time, apart from some guys who were smart enough to bring this event to Riet Greek, because in fact there were also two other uh, passes which were um, keen to get that event, but some uh, smart boys in Greek were yeah, quick enough to say, okay, let's do it here, that's the right spot. And they made everything ready pretty quick and said, okay, that's the place, that's the first airfield in Switzerland, and that's where these guys will take off. And now the story is here. Ah, such a great story. Uh, just before this, we were chatting about your very area in Fiesch, and it's obviously become a really, really famous place. Um, it's become a famous place because uh, more and more weather experts are kind of agreeing, if I may, and I'm speaking out of um, an expert's kind of uh, context here, but the weather band that you have a very constant kind of convergence that forms around in your valley so that it is often very, very good to fly up and down there. How many glaciers do you have around? Explain your terrain a little bit. I was quite shocked by the lack of land, The if you have to land in the middle of the day, which is really not recommended in your place. Do you want to give anybody any kind of uh, tips or warnings or anything or give us some info about it? It's, it's a long valley. Huh? Wallis is a valley which starts at Oberwald down to the Lake of Geneva. It's uh, about 150 kilometers long. And uh, this conversion you're talking about is actually it's just thermal, as you know, but it's getting so hot in this valley. The mountains are so big and steep, so it heats up massively and it also kind of like sucks the air from the outer region, you know, from the other sides of the Alps. To, because it's kind of like, uh, let's say, a low pressure here because all the warm air is going up all the time. And um, what I recommend to people when they fly here, fly in the mornings, don't be stupid and take off at one in the afternoon because at one in the afternoon, you, you could have flown already 80 kilometers, you know. So you can take off early, that means 9.30. A good uh, cross-country pilot takes off at 9, 9.30, the earliest possible to make then these big distances. But maybe it's better you start with a small distance. I mean, flying from Fiesch up the valley and back, maybe a little bit further down and back, makes you uh, quickly this 100Ks, which every pilot is dreaming uh, of um, in the beginning. And then you can also fly these famous triangles, you know, with 200Ks, whatever. It's all possible, but it's, uh, as you say, there's a strong valley wind coming up. 30, 40, 50 Ks, you know, and it's not a laminar wind, which you might be used to the big uh, fields, you know, when you fly, 30 kilometers are still kind of like okay, but here it's very turbulent because it's a narrow valley with lots of ridges um, and uneven valley floor. And as you say, the, there's not lots of places you can land, so it's good to talk to some, you know, to instructor in Fiesch or me, I'm in Greek, I'm a little bit apart Fiesch, which is less stressful for me because there are less people, there is less crowd, but it's uh, kind of like the same spot, you know, you take off here, you fly half an hour and you're in Fiesch, so we're just next to it. But it's good to, um, to get in touch with locals and um, you need to change your yeah, let's say your your habits a little bit when you fly here, not to take off at one in the afternoon and thinking, okay, that's the best time with the best thermal. One in the afternoon is too late, you know. Uh, glaciers, I don't know how many glaciers we have. For sure, they're getting smaller, but they're still huge. When you fly over them, you think you are in another world. You are far away from reality. 
What we have is uh, over 40 peaks, over 4,000 meters, which makes this area one of the famous in the world. And if all surround, you know, with these glaciers, it's one you are at three, three and a half thousand meters, you get a view. It's uh, absolutely spectacular, stunning, and it takes your breath away every time you see it. I mean, I, I might see this every day in summer, you know, when thermals are good, but each time it's kind of like, oh my God, it's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. uh, it is unbelievable. I was in tow with two fantastic American guys last year when we came and visited you guys. We had a good laugh and uh, flew very nicely. But as I said, uh, it's not the place that you would expect to be the place for championships in paragliding. And I'm not putting down your place, but I do think that it's the kind of area that you have to fly with a lot of caution. It's not just a selbstverständlich or um, self-explanatory place to fly. As you said, 40 peaks of 4,000 meters is really something. There's not a lot of places in the world which are accessible and able to fly like that. Uh, right now, I want to say thanks a lot uh, for accepting to come on the podcast and to, to chat with me. I think it's been really, really nice. Uh, um, you're absolutely welcome to, to share this far and wide, like everybody's encouraged to tell people about it. And, uh, of course, use the material yourself. That's just for fun and uh, just to create a last laugh. Have you got anything else you want to say or any other tips or advice? Maybe you've got a top tip you would like to tell any students that are starting flying or in their early stages of flying. Have you got something that's, that's been your like number one must do or must not do? Um, that's a good question, Steph. Um, for me, it was kind of like I found my passion pretty quickly. I realized it maybe later, but it was definitely my passion from the beginning. If it is not, if you start flying and you don't feel or find this passion, maybe fly a lot, fly more and also fly. You know, when you're always waiting for a perfect day, you won't fly a lot. Fly every time you can do different sort of stuff. Go high, do a hike and fly. Grab your friend and say, hey, hop in the car. Let's go on a one week trip just to somewhere and let's figure out how this paragliding works in other spots, you know? So the more you do, the more you fly, the more you will find out what you really love about flying, the more you get to know yourself better. And that's how you maybe find out or you will find your passion in flying because there's so many different aspects of flying. And I think, Everyone who started flying will find his passion somewhere in this beautiful world of paragliding. I mean, I fly a lot, but you need to do at least 50 flights a year. If not, you can stop and say, ah, don't be like that. I do 20 flights and I'm happy with that. But to me, it's the more you fly, the more you feel comfortable, the more routine you have, and that gives you a secure feeling in the air. And this secure feeling enables you to do more stuff, other stuff, you know, to, to try things, you know. Otherwise, you swim always in your small little swimming pool and you don't go to the big ocean, which offers you plenty of opportunities and um, beautiful experiences. Yeah. Mm, amen, my friend. Amen. Wonderful. Nice, <laughs> 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 
You are such a crazy guy. Listen, you must please say hi to Peter Neuenschwande. One thing I also wanted to make clear on this podcast is around these guys uh, are lots of wonderful flying places. Of course, maybe the most well-known flying place in, in Switzerland would be Interlaken because of the, the huge tandem business that happens there. But Peter Neuenschwande is another name that uh, is firmly ingrained in the history of paragliding. He's a guy who's actually changed completely to flying hang gliders now. He's found a new kind of love or passion. And uh, just to wrap up on what you've just said uh, there, Raul, I also feel that, uh, you know, again, you're the third pilot who says it, uh, in, uh, and very similar things. Uh, uh, Russell Ogden and Felix Rodriguez in podcasts both said the same kind of thing. Practice, practice, go out, do different things and, and, and grow that passion for your sport. Um, if your passion is not there, and again, I say it uh, in more than one podcast, uh, I'm very firmly against uh, the uh, uh, the majority of THV pilots who are, and it's not just German, it's, it's